Ephesians chapter 4. Now, last time I spoke, we were here, but and we read through the first and studied through the first six verses. Um, I'm going to focus in on just one of those verses that we read last time tonight. And we're going to talk about the subject matter that's there, and that's verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Um, so two weeks ago, we, we focused on the first six verses uh, in chapter 4 here, talking about living a life of good reputation and doing our best to live at peace with one another within the body of Christ. Tonight, I'd like I just take a short step back and just look at this one verse, and we're going to talk about verse 2 regarding humility. Uh, whenever I say the word humility, it always reminds me of this guy I used to play golf with when we, my wife and I lived in El Paso, Texas. We were there for seven years, and the golf course that, that we played at, you know, gave it was free green fees if you were a pastor. And so I always took advantage of that. And there's no such animal up here in Wisconsin, but down there they were more sympathetic towards us pastors. Poor man. And this guy that I played with, he was about uh, uh, 40 years my senior, and he was an amazing golfer. He was from southern Louisiana, and he had a southern Louisiana accent. And we'd be out playing, and if you've lived in the desert, you know that the humidity is really low all the time. And every once in a while, we'd have a thunderstorm blow through, and the humidity would just go up. And we'd be out on the golf course sweating, which is something that you just don't do when you're in El Paso heat. High desert heat is just not like that. And here we are out sweating, mosquitoes everywhere, because the golf course was located right on the Rio Grande River. And... Um, and we'd be going along, and, and, and he'd go, he says, man, this humility is just killing me. And he meant humidity, and I giggled every time he said that. And I, you know. <laughs> and I was like, who raised you? Where did you hear that word? <laughs> this humility is killing me. <laughs> and we're going to find out tonight that humility will not kill you. It's actually very healthy. It's a very good thing for us, isn't it? Erwin uh, McManus wrote a book called Uprising. Uh, it's a study on Christian character and how we can experience what he calls a revolution of the soul in that book. And after using this book uh, over seven or eight years, I use it for my personal devotions and I also use it as part of a curriculum that I developed for uh, leadership training for men. Uh, I'm just, I love the book. I still love it. I've become attached to it because of the fresh ideas and insights that he, he puts in there uh, and brings to the living this Christian life and what being a Christian really means. Uh, and so tonight I'd like to share some of what is in that book with you in connection with the subject matter here in Ephesians 2. And I feel like this pause that we're going to take tonight in Ephesians is really important because understanding humility is really, really crucial to living a successful Christian life. Uh, our last teaching in Ephesians was entitled Partakers of a New Humanity. Tonight we're going to talk about being partakers of a new humility. Humility and gentleness and patience are primary things in learning how to live together in a church setting. 
Got to have those three things going or it's going to be very difficult for us living together in a church. Over and over again, we are going to be challenged to exercise one of those three things or maybe all three of them together as we learn to relate to one another, sometimes all three at the same time. Patience, gentleness, and humility. The hard thing is that although we know in theory that Christians are supposed to live like this and exhibit patience, humility, and gentleness, we, of course, fail to do that many times. We, we fail often enough sometimes that we get discouraged. Uh, we give up trying. We figure that this pride and this arrogance that's a part of us and a part of our lives, it just... <laughs> sometimes I think that my own arrogance must be written into my DNA. It's indelible. I can't ever get rid of it. And the harder I try, the worse it gets. Uh, we look a lot at ourselves in the mirror and we see failure often in these areas. And it gets painful enough that sometimes after a while you'll even stop looking in the mirror as a Christian and you'll say, it's just no use. I don't want you to feel that way tonight. I don't want you to be encouraged tonight. And what we're going to talk about uh, regarding being patient, humble, uh, gentle people uh, applies to all of us, and, and, and it can be done. It can be done by the Spirit of God. Paul knew this about us. He knew that we would frequently meet with failure in our behavior and that we would frequently be tempted to give up. So, over and over again, the Apostle Paul encouraged believers in his letters, don't give up, keep on trying, remember who you are, remember what Christ has done for you, strive to grow in your faith. In this respect, we could say that a believer is somebody who believes in Jesus Christ and understands Christ's expectations, and he does his best to meet those expectations and then fails and tries again. For the rest of my life, that's going to be a pattern. I'm going to, I know the Lord's expectations. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep hammering away at it. I'm going to fail. And then the Lord wants me to hang in there and try again and try again and try again. <laughs> I think trying again is a very important thing in the Christian life. Would you agree with that? Trying again. But you know what? We fail to see that. And the reason we fail to see it is because it's so simple. Trying again is a very simple thing, but we, it goes right over our heads. Oh, we, we, we should be better people than that. We shouldn't have to be trying again all the time. Yeah, you've got to keep trying again. Our attempts at demonstrating Christ-like humility, patience, gentleness, they do fail. But I'm saying today that we can't give up trying and like everything else, when we want to do something, and we want to do it well, we have to practice doing it over and over again until we get it right. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about with this humility thing. It's, it's actually something that the Lord's going to take us through as Christians over and over and over again until we start getting it right. The first thing we need to remember about this particular verse in Ephesians about living uh, a humble life is that it is an imperative. Be completely humble 
We saw last time that an imperative, when it's spoken or written to another person, means I'm giving that person an order. This is not an optional thing. It's an order. And that's the way this is written as well. I expect something of that person. And in this case, Paul expects humility of us because of one thing. He knows that we can give it. The overriding premise for all that we learn from here in this chapter to the end of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians, the overriding premise of all of this is this. God does not expect something from us that we cannot give. Evidently, God does expect that we believers are able to be completely humble. Wow. (laughs) That seems like a tall order, but he expects it. So what does it mean? Well, let's put it real simple. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride gets people into all sorts of trouble because most of the time a proud person insists on getting his own way and he'd rather have things that way than someone else's way, especially God's. We learn, however, a very basic lesson in the scriptures about pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The King James Version says that God actually resists the proud. Perhaps you have never run into the resistance of God. And if you haven't, it's probably because you're already a humble person. But for most of us, we understand what it is to face God's resistance. And depending on how long it has taken God to wear us down, we have broken under divine opposition and we have begun to see things His way. Can you all identify with what I'm saying? Have you ever been broken in your life by divine opposition? God's trying to get you to see one thing and you don't want to see it that way and all of a sudden life gets really hard. And all of a sudden you're feeling the pressure of heaven on your life. And you keep trying to do it your way and you keep trying and you keep trying. And eventually God says, well, you just, you're not going any further with this. So let me break you down a little bit. And he does. And that's what I mean by divine opposition. He has his ways of helping us as believers understand that his will is the thing that needs to stand in our lives. Not our own. Okay? Humility is simply lowering my opinion of my opinion and placing myself in God's hands as his servant. McManus says, first of all, that humility takes courage, and courage is born out of a life of integrity. So, how does one become such a person? Well, it's not hard to figure out. A person of integrity is a person of truth, he says. But truth alone cannot make us people of integrity. There is a lot of truth out there, but if it's not applied properly in my life, it will not give birth to integrity. For example, I can say in truth to another person, if you're separated from Jesus, you're separated from God. Is that the truth? Yes, Does saying it or knowing it make me a person of integrity? No. Or God says in the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. 
Now, by my saying that, or knowing that, or believing that, do I become a person of integrity? No. The truth of the Eighth Commandment informs my integrity. It tells me what to do and what not to do if I want to be a person of integrity, but it has no power in itself to do that thing to make me that way. There has to be something else happen inside of me. And so what happens? What, For example, what happens if I'm to follow the Eighth Commandment on my journey to integrity? What have I got to do? I have to become, and this is very important, I have to become teachable. And it takes a little humility to be teachable. That means that I have to allow myself to be taught by the Eighth Commandment. Because I may need to change the way I think about stealing, i.e., it's not okay. How could that be, you may ask? It's because stealing can take on so many different forms. We can cheat on our taxes. We can overcharge customers if we're running our own business. We can cheat God by withholding our tithes and offerings from Him. We can steal from our employer by misusing our paid time. We can steal from our family by spending money on alcohol or gambling that should have gone for food and clothing. Those are ways that we can rebel against that commandment. Humility comes when I allow myself to be taught by the Eighth Commandment and I take it to heart and then I change my behavior. And then you start to learn a little bit about integrity. For some of that, boy, I'll tell you what, that takes some courage to allow your life to be changed like that. A coward will always retreat back into his poor behavior. And a coward will always make excuses for himself. A man or woman of courage opens their heart to be taught by the laws of God and the principles in the scriptures. And this new teaching that is based on truth informs that their, their sense of integrity and then we become people of integrity. But it takes humility to be able to be taught. And that's why we're, we're talking about those things right now. There are very successful people out there, and you know some of them, who are also very prideful. They prove to us, these people, that if you're stubborn enough and self-willed enough, you can fight your way to the top and achieve certain success. But you're not going to have any friends if you're a person like that, and you will certainly be no friend of God. There are even Christian leaders who behave like this. Believe me, I've run into some. I probably have been like that at times. Who, these, these are guys, Christian leaders, who cannot be taught, who cannot therefore learn, and who therefore do not have the courage to be humble. I've known men and women like this, and their stories always, always, always have a sad ending. McManus writes, if all you care about is yourself, that's all you're going to have. Be prepared to live and die alone. That's if we're not teachable. Next, a person needs humility to lead. 
Listen to this quote from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never, will never fade away. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's almighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, we don't often talk of humility in connection to leadership, but we really should. The, the title of this chapter in McManus's book is called Rising Downward. Leadership is nothing more than my ability to influence other people. And there's only one way to gain influence with people, and that's through serving them. Leading people means serving people. And that hinges on my willingness to bow. Humility in leadership means that I'm always putting great value on the people that I lead. And I'm not just speaking of pastors of churches. I'm talking about every one of us, because every one of us here tonight lead in a certain capacity in some area of your life, whether it's in your family or whether it's in your area of work, whether it's with your friends, wherever it might be, you will find yourself leading at some point. My focus as a leader has to be on serving others instead of how I'm going to get my needs met. A leader draws his inspiration from the ultimate leader with a capital L, Jesus Christ, who came to serve rather than to be served. For leaders, McManus addresses one of our greatest needs, and he teaches the difference between self-deprecation and self-awareness. Self-deprecation, not so good. Self-awareness, very good. Humility he says, is not about having a low self-image. It's not about having poor self-esteem. Humility is about self-awareness. If you see yourself for who you are and you embrace that honestly, humility becomes the natural result. A servant leader understands himself. He's realistic about what he can and cannot do. And he accepts his limitations. Leaders who do not accept limitations often become puffed up. They develop a determination to be seen as bigger than they are, kind of like this fish <laughs> right up behind me here. Isn't he cool looking? He looks real threatening. You studied fish like this before in school. And you know that although a fish like this looks big and threatening and menacing, when they're puffed up, they're actually... Very small, very slow, and very weak. God is okay with a self-aware person, even if that person is flawed. He's okay with that. Self-aware people are teachable people. They can grow as God teaches them. They know enough about themselves that it's impossible for them to get all puffed up. They know that what you see is what you get. Moses was the man that God chose 
to lead the Israelites out of 400 years of captivity in Egypt. And if you read the book of Exodus, you'll discover many of Moses' exploits. It truly is amazing how God used Moses. But tucked away in the boring, boring book of Numbers is an interesting verse. And it talks about Moses' character. It says, and this verse, by the way, in Numbers is in parentheses, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Numbers chapter 12. In that chapter, Moses' authority over Israel was being questioned by other leadership, namely his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. His authority was being questioned because why? He had taken a Cushite woman, woman, a North African woman, as his wife. She was not a Jew. At least that's the excuse that Miriam and Aaron used when they challenged Moses' leadership. And the author of Numbers is surprised by their challenge. So was God. Because verse 2 says that the Lord heard them challenge Moses in secret. They were whispering among themselves, but the Bible says God heard it anyway. Something even more extraordinary about this verse in Numbers, and that is the author of this verse in Numbers. You know who it was? Moses. Can you imagine writing an autobiography of your life experiences and include that in uh, this phrase? Now, Joe, Pastor Joe, was very humble, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Plug your name in there, dude. That is exactly what Moses did. He was the author of Numbers, and he wrote this about himself. That's called being self-aware. Not boastful, just self-aware. And great leaders are always self-aware. If you go back farther into Moses' history, you discover in his initial, initial encounter with God in the book of Exodus that he insisted to God that God had the wrong man for the job. You remember that? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Exodus 3. He argued that the people might think that he was delusional. What if they don't believe me? And they say, the Lord didn't appear to you. Crazy person. After God answered that question, Moses had a further objection. Oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He was self-aware. He knew he couldn't speak well. God once again assured Moses that it would be okay because he'd be with him. But even after this threefold calling from God, Moses said, You have the wrong guy. I'm so sorry, but you picked the wrong guy. Send somebody else to do this, please. Moses, in other words, was one flabbergasted dude when God called him to lead Israel. His basic response to God was, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) Moses wrote of himself as the most humble man on earth because he saw himself as the least qualified man on earth 
to do what he had to do. Humility meant something different to him than what it might mean to us. It wasn't self-deprecating. He was just stating a fact. I'm weak and God is big. He was self-aware. He had no over-inflated idea of who he was. He allowed God to go before him and do the talking. He simply became God's instrument of choice. He became a channel through which God spoke to Israel. It's also important to see that Moses was not only an instrument of God, he was someone precious to God as well. Humble people are typically greatly favored by God. And Moses was no different. Chapter 33 of Exodus is extraordinary because it lets us in on the relationship that existed between Moses and God. The intimacy that he enjoyed with Jehovah. He would go into a small tent. It was called the tent of meeting. And he would converse with God face to face. Exodus 33.11 says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We're privy to another conversation Moses had with God. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Moses said to God, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation I'm leading is your people. He always knew where he was at. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In verse 17, God said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Wow, isn't that cool? Humble people get to hear stuff like that from God. And finally Moses asked God, Now show me your glory. And at this God instructed Moses where to stand and what to do. As God passed by, Moses was allowed to see God's back. And in the process he was given the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34. Humble men and women enjoy friendship with God and they are the ones that God usually raises up into leadership. There is courage in humility. And no one demonstrated more courage than Moses. Leading millions of people. Some say there were millions of people. Hebrews that he led out of Egypt. Facing total annihilation by the armies of Pharaoh. And then standing strong in the wilderness when a good percentage of these very people turned on him and rose up in opposition to him. If you study the contrast between Moses and Pharaoh, the difference centers almost exclusively around the quality of humility. Whereas God commended Moses' humility, he questioned Pharaoh. God came to Pharaoh and said, Hey, what's up? What's up with you? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He asked uh, Moses in, in, or asked Pharaoh in, in Exodus 10:3. Moses derived supernatural courage from his humility. Pharaoh showed cowardice through his stubbornness and his pride. Another thing that we might not think about is that God is humble. 
God is humble. We don't think of God that way, but it is one of his attributes. The reason we know that God is humble is what we see in Jesus Christ. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came from God to earth in order to make a way for man to come back to God. In order to accomplish that, we know that Jesus had to die by execution at the hands of men who hated him. That happened, and today we know by reading the New Testament that his death provided the way back to God for all men. His humility is detailed in in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And there it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. If you can imagine God choosing to make himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. McManus points out that if you think about it, it makes sense that God would be a humble God. Without humility, a God of infinite power would use his resources to impress rather than to transform. Without humility, God would find no value in us, nor would he be concerned for our well-being. Had Jesus come with power and royalty and wealth and prestige, it would have only approved all the things we lust after. He calls us to humbleness in order that we might be reflections of divinity. Jesus was most honored because he was the most humble. He has been exalted to the highest place, for he alone was willing to go to the lowest place. Jesus lights the way to a hidden path that has been long forgotten. It is an easy thing to see honor hidden behind humility. This journey is violently counterintuitive. When we strive to climb up, we become entirely unaware of how low we actually may be going. Is it possible that the way down leads to the highest pinnacles? Like a journey through an ancient portal, we must go against our natural instincts and trust the path that leaves us rising downward. In South America, maybe you know this, the llama is a cultural metaphor for pride. Do you know that? You don't need a fence to corral a group of llamas. Instead, all you need is a rope. And you just circle the group of llamas with a rope. The rope is placed at a height just below the level of their heads and with the base of their necks. That's all you got to do to corral llamas. They will not stoop their necks <laughs> to go under that rope. Isn't that awesome? They would rather remain captive 
then stoop their necks in order that they might go free. We're talking about transformation tonight in this book of Ephesians. In the first half of Ephesians, we are taught what God has provided us in order for us to be transformed. That was the first half. In this section, this last half of Ephesians, we are taught what transformed people do. And humility is on that list. McManus says this again, We are never called in the Bible to pray for humility. Instead, we are commanded to be humble. There are some things God does and some things that, some things that God requires. And so, my humility becomes my choice. It comes about through a series of choices I make for the good after, after Christ has transformed me on the inside. My choices in life to serve and to be humble eventually will affect my attitudes. And as McManus says, attitude is shaped in the context of humility. If I got a problem with pride, it's not by accident that I got there. McManus says that attitude is not formed in a vacuum. Attitude is an expression of deeper realities that are inside of us. When a person has an attitude problem, what he or she really has is an arrogance problem. And so in light of what we have seen here, that leadership demands humility and that humility demands courage and that God himself, God himself is humble and proved it through the service and sacrifice of Jesus, seeing all of that, can we honestly answer these two questions? Number one, would you be willing to give your life to save the world if nobody even knew your name? And second of all, if anonymity was the price that you would have to pay for significance, would it be too great a price? I think most of us have no idea how important recognition and status are to us. We say, oh, it doesn't matter if I get recognized for something or not, but really we care. It is important to us. We're just not being honest. We're not being self-aware sometimes, like, we, like I talked about earlier. And I think that's too bad because it does not speak well of the church. Our lust for recognition and for being thanked, our lust for position and power drains us dry of true power, true courage, true effectiveness. I believe our success in our families, in our jobs, and in this church will be measured by how we have served and by what attitude we did it. That's how God measures success. And he's watching, by the way. God watches. God waits with great expectation to congratulate each one of us with well done, well done, good servant.
when we see him face to face, which we all will do someday. With that in mind, I believe that we can all afford to be what Paul wrote here, completely humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I want to close with this. It's a short parable from the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to this carefully. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against that city and surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. Nobody remembered that poor man. Well, almost nobody. Because God remembers the humble, doesn't he? You know, it doesn't matter what you and I do in life when, it's, when we've done well, when we have served someone, when we have helped them. If it's in the shadows, it's okay. Because nothing is ever done in the shadows with Almighty God. Nothing. He sees everything you do, every prayer you pray, every thought you think towards someone, being a blessing to someone, helping someone. He sees you in your teachable moments. He sees you when you learn. He sees you when you acknowledge, yeah, I was wrong. Man, I, I got to learn to do this different sees that stuff. It matters to him. It may not matter to anybody else, but it matters to him. And, yeah, nobody remembered this poor man. Nobody did in the city anyway, but, but God remembers him. How do we know that? Well, because they wrote a story about the guy here in the Bible. People have been reading about this man in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 for 2,000 years at least. He was remembered. And God knows his name. Just like he knows your name. He knows your name. We don't have to worry about getting the credit. <laughs> he knows your name. Amen. Be comforted by that tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. Lord, as Paul said here in uh, Ephesians, we want to be humble people. He waits for us. You wait for us. You wait to give us that well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, our prayer tonight is that you'll help us to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Lord, educate our hearts, educate our spirits. Help us to be self-aware. Lord, so that we understand that we're totally capable of being prideful, arrogant people. And Lord, change us on the inside so that we can become more like Christ. For your kingdom's sake, for your glory's sake, Lord. And that we can learn how to love one another and really care and serve one another, care for one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.